The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Why are some of us given the gift of being immersed in a mystical experience? And what are we supposed to do with the story of our NDE, OBE, or vision once we've experienced it? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Churches should be the logical vehicle for conveying the NDE stories we experience. And yet, many pastors shy away from any discussion of today's personal mystical experiences, relying instead on the mystical events written about in the Bible thousands of years ago. They speak of the Word of God, and yet... The proliferation of NDEs would suggest that God is still speaking to us if we would only listen and then share that information. As a minister and chaplain ordained in the National Association of Congregational Christian Churches, I recently wrote an article for my fellow pastors through the NACCC's September 2016 issue of The Congregationalist, a magazine in print since its founding in 1849. As a suggestion to church members of all denominations who might be listening out there, I thought I'd read that article to you now to encourage all of you to share today's visions and knowledge with other members of your own religious faiths. Let one another know about the light as it's being experienced every day through mystical revelations gained from the near-death experience. So my article in The Congregationalist, uh, is titled, Working with the Reality of Near-Death Experiences. Have you ever wondered what it's like for the writers of the Bible, how God might have contacted them, how the words came to their minds? And by what means did God communicate content? By visions, dreams, a voice in their heads, automatic writing? Or perhaps, as with many near-death experiencers, their souls were transported to heaven itself, where they spoke with God and the angels about what they should convey of God's holy word. Tradition tells us the first books of the Old Testament were given by God to Moses, dictated perhaps under cover of Moses' tent as the Spirit hovered over the Ark of the Covenant while Moses copied down the early history of the creation. The prophet Isaiah speaks of a vision, while the prophet Jeremiah says, The word of the Lord came to me. Ezekiel spoke with a fiery man form with a rainbow-like radiance around him who gave him a scroll to swallow. One of the favorite hymns at my seminary's get-togethers was Here I Am, Lord, derived, of course, from uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. All of us sang with a secret hope that our calling was genuine and personal and would amount to something important. We could relate to that notion that God calls us out by name to bring his truth to those in need of hearing. What we chose to ignore was the mission God gave gives to Isaiah. He says to Isaiah, go and tell the people, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused 
make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Fortunately, Isaiah's report of his own personal mystical experience of God opened our ears, eyes, and hearts, despite God's instructions on how to debilitate the congregations. Those of us who sang Here I Am find ourselves today in a society similar to Isaiah's. As a hospital chaplain, I visit many patients who describe themselves as nuns, and that's spelled N-O-N-E-S, no religious affiliation, on their admission sheet. Along with the nuns are a handful of pagans and Wiccans, while teens and younger are particularly taken with notions of vampires, zombies, and immortals. But for adult patients under 50, the nun designation predominates. As a chaplain, I'm usually welcome to their room regardless, since an interest in what happens to us when we die remains strong, and reports of near-death experiences are interesting to nearly everyone. Christians who relate to near-death experience stories often refer to St. Paul's NDE. Saul, the rabbi, participated in the killing of Christians. Knocked down by his reprimand from Jesus, he changed his ways. But it was very possibly the vision of the third heaven he writes about in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 7, where he was given, quote, surpassingly great revelations, unquote. Perhaps all of Paul's understanding of Christian theology. This near-death experience probably uh, took place when a crowd stoned him to death. Well, with an estimated 774 NDEs happening in this country every day, and with a growing acceptance of their reality, even by the medical community, it's becoming harder to believe God is not communicating with us through these NDEs. Some of the more extensive contemporary NDEs involve a download of knowledge so profound as to change the lives of the experiencers. It's one thing to be told by Jesus that it's not your time to die. It's quite another to strike up a conversation with him, ask questions you find he's willing to answer, and then be told there are things in your life you still must accomplish, including the sharing of what you have learned. If some modern NDEs report, if some modern NDE reports are any example, St. Paul could have received in one NDE the entirety of why Christ came to earth, taught what he did, and offered salvation through his death and resurrection. It seems possible that Paul was fully enlightened in one shining visit to the hereafter and returned to his body with a heightened clarity of vision and a renewed dedication to the difficult assignment he'd been given. My own near-death experience, a drowning when I was seven, didn't hand me profound answers to the mysteries, except to prove to me the eternal nature of my soul. But as a hospital chaplain working with trauma and palliative care patients, I have heard all the different levels of experience that can happen during an NDE. And as a, for a while, publications director for the uh, IONS group, I have interviewed many of those who have written books, given TV interviews, uh, traveled the lecture circuit, and so forth, because, like Paul, they believe they've been, giving an, been given an assignment to describe our role on earth and the nature of eternity. 
As our techniques for resuscitating stopping stopped hearts have improved, NDE accounts abound. Books about NDEs proliferate, and many more experiencers today than ever before have the courage to speak, write, paint, and create music in an effort to describe the indescribable. And while the basic structure of an NDE seems the same across all cultures and religions, each experience carries a personality as unique as each individual experiencer. And yet, many NDEers are still hesitant to speak about what they learned. Some are closed-mouthed for 20 years or more until someone shares their experience with them and they decide, well, it's probably time to tell their story in return. For example, this year a pastor in Arizona began an Easter series of five Sunday sermons on near-death experiences. And by the end, several members of his congregation came to him and told of their own NDEs. A few were brave enough to share theirs with the congregation. And uh, as an aside, I was uh, quite happy to have been to two of those five sessions. And it was quite remarkable um, how powerful the NDE message became for his congregants. Throughout the centuries, many visionaries have uh, been declared saints by the Catholic Church for sharing their communications from Mary, from Jesus, and generally from saints in the hereafter. Still many priests and pastors remain afraid to involve contemporary personal mystical experiences in their discussions of God. And then I quote this, if the King James Version was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. It's an old joke with a new twist when it comes to NDEs. And yet, God is still speaking to us through people he has chosen to return to life. Many of them bring gifts as profound as many Bible passages we teach. The messages are almost always about love, God's love for us, the nature of God as love in the hereafter, and the remainder, the reminder that we are here to practice love with one another. What Paul learned about love in his NDE, I think, formed the basis of his profound teaching in 1 Corinthians 13, that all elements of religious practice become meaningless without love. We needn't think of NDEs as definitive descriptions of the hereafter. Each is an experience so personal that I can't help but believe it was intended primarily as an instructional gift to the experiencer. Even distressing experiences, which occur about 20% of the time, are to instruct the, the experiencer. But sharing such testimony, however personal, positive or negative, can be a great gift for both the teller and the hearer. As a hospital chaplain dealing more and more with unchurched patients these days, I find these reports of contemporary NDEs to be immensely interesting and instructive to patients and their families. And my Sunday congregation is equally interested as well. God is still speaking, and pastors who ignore the reality of NDEs and other personal mystical experience are missing an important element in their congregants' lives. And that's where that little article ends. And uh, I think once they get the September issue posted uh, on uh, the congregational, the, on the NACCC 
a website, you'll be able to uh, link to it. It wasn't up there this morning, but hopefully they'll have it up there soon. I want to take the rest of the time to go back to something I was doing on this show on August 8th. Um, I had just come back from a really excellent uh, IONS conference in Orlando uh, that it, in late July. And I think I said I came back with a suitcase full of books. Um, and that's true, and I haven't read them all yet, I must admit. But perhaps um, none was as important as this Ian's translation into English of the Dutch book, The Self Does Not Die. The authors, uh, Titus Rivas, Annie Durvin, uh, Rudolf Smith, have uh, collected in this volume um, NDE stories demonstrating the near-death and out-of-body experience uh, can, can provide what we call veridical or verifiable evidence that the experience was not a dream or a hallucination or a drug reaction uh, or evidence of the dying brain's closing down of the optic nerve, any of the uh, explanations that medical science has offered, but a conscious experience of the consciousness departing the body and observing reality from the soul state of our being. And through funding by IONS and the hard work of Robert and Suzanne Mays in putting together the English edition of The Self Does Not Die, we uh, now have a collection of more than 100 stories with real evidence of the reality of the NDE experience. So I thought to finish out our show today, I'm going to read you um, a few of these stories from The Self Does Not Die. There are some more, uh, if you go back to the August 8, 2016 edition of the show, uh, you'll hear more of these stories as well. And I hope you'll find them intriguing enough to order a copy of this book for yourself. If you're talking to people about near-death experiences, uh, they often want some sort of proof that such a thing could happen. And this is, um, a lot of these are observational stories where the person out of their body witness something or hear something that they couldn't possibly have known about while they were lying unconscious or dead on the operating table or wherever. All right, so let me get to The Self Does Not Die. And I'm going to start with a story. It's not um, it's not melodramatic. It's called A Pink Lollipop. It's very, it's very, uh, uh, it's a very conventional story, but uh, that's very convention, conventionality is uh, is important, I think, because uh, there's evidence that uh, many of these stories offer, if only you uh, take the time to think them through, many out-of-body experiences are much more verifiable, in fact, than uh, NDEs from time to time. A pink lollipop, case 1.9. In 2006, Penny Satori, along with colleagues Reverend Paul Badham and Dr. Peter Fenwick, published a case report in the Journal of Near-Death Studies. And that's um, a magazine of uh, IONS that you, if you decide to join IONS, you'll get as part of the membership. In this case, which occurred in the hospital where Satori worked in Wales, two different phenomena occurred, a paranormal observation and a miraculous healing of physical ailments. Thus, this case also appears in Chapter 9. And I'll, I'll read that to you, too, if we have time. 
Here we address only the first phenomenon. Satori also reported on this patient in her book, The Near-Death Experiences of Hospitalized Intensive Care Patients, where he is designated as Patient 10. Patient 10 was a 60-year-old white male who was recovering from an emergency intervention in connection with intestinal cancer. After the operation, he felt terrible. He was suffering from sepsis and the failure of various organs. Nevertheless, after five days, he seemed to be improving. He no longer needed medication to keep his blood pressure at normal levels, and his kidneys started functioning normally again, so his kidney treatment was discontinued. He was improving so rapidly that the medical team, especially his uh, physiotherapist, encouraged him to leave his bed and sit in a nearby chair to help him begin to regain muscle tone. Within about five minutes after he sat down in the chair, his respiratory rate increased considerably and the oxygen content in his lungs had dropped from its former normal levels of 96% or higher to 70% or 86%. Because it was uh, feared that cardiac arrest was imminent, the patient was immediately returned to his bed, whereupon the patient lapsed into a deep, unconscious state with his eyes shut and with him failing to respond to verbal commands or quite painful stimulation. The patient's condition deteriorated, and everyone tried to figure out what was going on. Various medical procedures were performed in an attempt to improve his condition. Meanwhile, the physiotherapist on the team worried that she was responsible for what had happened, uh, and she, the woman, uh, the physiotherapist, was standing nervously on the side of the privacy curtain, intermittently poking her head around the curtain to see how the patient was doing. And once the patient's condition had stabilized, they noticed that he was drooling. Satori cleaned the patient up. First, she used a long suction catheter and then a wet pink sponge on his mouth. After about half an hour, the patient began to blink his eyes and move his arms and legs. He was still unable to respond to commands, however. Three or four hours after the incident, the patient had fully regained consciousness. Now, once the patient had revived, the medical team on duty walked toward his bed. He made an excited attempt to tell the doctor something. He could not speak because he was hindered by a breathing apparatus. He was given a, a board with letters on which he spelled out, quote, I died and I watched it all from above. As soon as the patient no longer needed the breathing apparatus and recovered his voice, Satori did an in-depth interview. And we cite a few passages from her article. The patient told Satori, They wanted me to get out of bed with all my tubes in me and sit in the chair. They insisted, especially one sister. I didn't want to because I felt so weak. Then eventually I got out. All I can remember is looking up in the air and I was floating in a bright pink room. I couldn't see anything. I was just going up and there was no pain at all. It was unusual. I I went up. It was so painless. There was no pain. I was so happy. I was enjoying myself. But looking back, I could see everybody. I was happy, no pain at all, until I felt somebody going to my eye. I looked back and I could see my bed, my body in the bed. I could see everything that was happening on the floor. I saw doctors when I was up there. I was looking down and could see the doctors and even the sister, what she was actually doing in the ward. 
it was marvelous. I could, I could see nurses around me and the doctors. I was still going up in the air and I could feel somebody going like this to my eye. And then in parentheses, he, he raised his finger up to his eye. I eventually looked back and I could see one of the doctors pulling my eye. What for? I didn't know. One doctor was saying, there's life in the eye. I could see everybody panicking around me. The blonde lady therapist boss, she was panicking. She looked nervous because she was the only one who got, she was the one that got me into the chair. She hid behind the curtains but kept poking her head around to check on me. I could also see Penny who was the nurse and she was drawing something out of my mouth which looked to me like a long pink lollipop, like a long pink thing on a stick. I didn't even know what a, what that was. Eventually I felt myself coming slowly back into my body. I went in, I went in my body on the bed and I was in terrible pain. The pain was worse than it had ever been before. All these cables were in me as they were before I went up. I couldn't speak because I had tubes in my throat and my nose. I heard voices down below but couldn't make out what they were saying. Only thing, something about my eye, life there. I don't know what he meant by that. And then there's a PS. I remember that. It was the consultant, actually, and he looked in your eye and he shone a torch, a flashlight, and he said, yes, they, the pupils, are reacting, but unequal. And then here are some quotes. Uh, the patient says, You were there, Penny, and two doctors, but but you with the lollipop sponge, yes, like a mouthwash? And the uh, doctor says, I can remember doing that, but at the time you were completely unconscious and your eyes were closed. The patient said, Well, I could see that as plain as I can see you now. Doctor, did you hear me say that I was going to clean your mouth? Patient, no, I didn't hear anything. I was just looking back and could see you doing something with my mouth and seeing this long pink thing. Satori wondered whether her patient's OBE could be reduced to a mental model that he had constructed from what remained of his sight, sounds, and instances of touch. She wrote about this possibility in the same article. This is from that. This patient had been in the intensive therapy unit for eight days prior to the experience and was very familiar with the layout of the unit and the daily routine. At this point, it is pertinent to examine the features of his OBE separately. Number one, the doctor shining the light in his eyes. The doctor who checked his pupils was the consultant anesthetist, anesthetist, sorry, who entered the uh, intensive therapy unit for the first time that day, just as the patient's condition deteriorated. The junior doctors were unavailable. Subsequently, the consultant reviewed the patient. When the patient's condition stabilized following the administration of fluid to increase the blood pressure, the junior doctors arrived and the consultant returned to his office until he began the ward rounds later that afternoon. The consultant checked that the patient's pupils were reacting by shining a light into them. He remarked, yes, they're reacting, but unequal. The patient reported hearing the doctor saying, there's life in the eye, or something like that. This was inaccurate, although the highlighted this highlighted his interpretation of what was said and was a good comprehension of what the consultant meant. The patient was unconscious by the time the consultant reviewed him and remained unconscious while the consultant left the bit 
when the be- consultant left the bedside. It was only as the ward rounds approached the bed- patient's bed area four hours later that he regained full consciousness and excitedly tried to communicate what he had experienced. The patient correctly identified the consultant as having shown the light in his eyes rather than one of the junior doctors with whom he was familiar. The patient was deeply unconscious at this time and had not previously seen the consultant that morning, although he had seen the other junior doctors. However, it is possible that he heard the consultant's voice at the time of unconsciousness, which may have contributed to the construction of a mental model. Number two, the nurse cleaning his mouth. When the patient had been put back to bed, he had drooled from the side of his mouth. Once his condition had stabilized, the nurse cleaned his mouth. He knew who the nurse, he knew who his nurse for the day was and was familiar with the nursing procedures to be performed. He knew that his mouth was cleaned by using a pink sponge dipped in water. When performing any nursing procedure, the nurse always explains her actions even if the patient is unconscious. He could therefore have heard the nurse explain her actions, although he adamantly denied having done so and could also have felt her cleaning his mouth. However, because he had drooled a long suction catheter normally used for uh, uh, endothoracic suction, was used to clean the uh, oropharyngeal secretions from the back of his throat. Uh, this long catheter was used in preference to the shorter, hard plastic Yankauer sucker as it's softer and more comfortable for the patient. This is not the usual procedure as most nurses use the Yankauer. After his mouth was cleaned, a moist pink sponge was put into his mouth to freshen it up. The pink sponge is not long, as the patient reported, but the suction catheter that was used first was long. He could therefore have seen both pieces of equipment Also, the secretions cleaned away were pink in color. Three, the physiotherapist poking her head around the curtains. The patient also reported seeing the physiotherapist looking very nervous and poking her head around the curtains to see if his condition was improving. The same physiotherapist was on the ward rounds at the time he reported the the experience. She had been on duty all day, and the patient was aware of this fact. It is possible but not confirmed that she inquired verbally about the patient's condition as she was poking her head around the curtains. Thus, the patient could have heard her asking, which could have contributed to the construction of a mental model. The patient's eyes were closed throughout the period. The physiotherapist was checking on his condition. However, if his OBE was a mental reconstruction, it is surprising that the patient should report her to be, quote, poking her head around the curtain looking very nervous. Unquote. It would be more likely that he would construct a view of her standing closer to the bedside without the need to poke her head around the curtains. So you can see what's going on here. This is a quite a, a, a an interesting analysis of how this this OB could have been constructed in the person's imagination. But I want to follow up with this. Um, there's no explanation for the for this following part of the story. Since birth, this British patient had suffered from cerebral palsy with a tight spastic hemiparesis whereby his right hand was always contracted. The patient explained that his hand had been claw-like all his life. This assertion was reported by a witness stating 
uh, a witness statement from his sister. But after his OBE, the patient was suddenly able to open his hand, even though he did not report that the contents of the, they call it NDE here, explicitly involved or referenced healing. Although no formal assessment or documentation of the extent of the contracture had been made by the medical staff at admission or at any time prior to the NDE, the patient's medical records documented that several years earlier the hospital appliances department had made a splint for the patient's hand. The patient stated that the splint had not helped and that his hand had remained contracted. The medical and physiotherapy notes were checked to see whether any extensive physiotherapy had been performed in his hand, and this was not the case. The notes prior to discharge did mention increased muscle tone in his contracted hand. This fact was discussed with a physiotherapist who explained that the hand should not have been capable of opening without an operation to release the tendons that had been in contracted position for more than 60 years. And finally, on a related note, the patient had also had a walking impediment since birth. After his NDE, his walking suddenly and markedly improved. There are more than a hundred stories, some of them quite amazingly um, more dramatic than this, but I wanted to give you a a very straightforward story of an OBE and how these um, facts have been investigated and argued back and forth. Uh, People are seriously trying to um, demonstrate that this is not uh, a hallucination of any kind or some overheard information, but but, um, important proof that NDEs, OBEs, and the, and the like are real. Well, I hope you found this fascinating enough to go to the ions.org website and order a copy of The Self Does Not Die for Yourself. But we are out of time for today, so if you'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org and tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.